0: Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. This is an audio podcast exclusive where uh, I will take a lot of the content that I've done or actually all of it that I've done in the first uh, two days of Wimbledon, first round. It's not even over yet. It was supposed to be over, but because of rain both days, it's not actually over. But uh, first two days of Wimbledon, I've done a lot of uh, post-match recaps and I uh, also did a piece talking about why players are slipping on the grass. So uh, I'm just going to put all that together for everyone. Uh, Make sure that you are uh, subscribed. If you listen to me on audio, Spotify, Apple, make sure you're following and you're subscribed. And also it's a big help if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that a lot. Uh, So I want to start with uh, the grass court piece, just uh, a quick bit about players slipping at Wimbledon. It was a tough day at the All-England Club, especially on center court. Adrian Manorino was up two sets to one on Roger Federer before slipping, injuring his knee, and having to retire in that match. Next on was Serena Williams against Alexandra Sasnovich. And Serena also endured slight slippage of the foot, which led to her ankle doing something funky, and Serena... At the age that she is, going for her 24th slam at the major where it's most likely to happen, also had to retire from her first round match. She's never lost before the third round at Wimbledon. So obviously, everyone is feeling a certain type of way right now, and this comes not Suddenly, but after day one and midway through day two, there were people already discussing the slippery grass at Wimbledon 2021. I want to start off by saying I do think that the groundskeepers and the All England Club do need to look into this and and search for solutions. But before I I get into that conversation, uh, let's talk about context, why this happens, and grass courts in general. Uh, Some of this insight does come from Jason Goodall, who is a commentator for ESPN, but most importantly, is a member at the All England Club. There are a lot of people offering their opinions about the grass courts, and I choose to listen to Jason Goodall's opinions over everyone else's because he is literally a member at the club. He plays there all year round. And he's also well-sourced and well-connected with the players. So uh, the first thing to note, and this might be somewhat hard to accept, but it needs to be accepted, is that this is not a new thing. 2013 was a notorious year for players slipping at Wimbledon. 2017 was a notorious year for players slipping at Wimbledon. Not only does it differ based on the year, But it also differs based on sometimes the day. Sometimes you will have a day at Wimbledon where it rains all night, rains in the morning, uh, cloud cover in the day, which just doesn't uh, sufficiently dry out the courts. And it would almost always happen early in the tournament, first couple days, and you can have a day where the grass is just slippery. This is not new. Has it ever struck the tournament at a profile that reaches the level of Serena Williams? I'm not sure, but I can assure you that nothing is happening in the first two days of this year's Wimbledon that has never happened before. These are things that have happened before historically. With that being said, there are some things that perhaps could make this tournament a little bit unique and could be making the grass extra slippery, more slippery than usual. First of all, uh, there was a wet spring in the United Kingdom, lots of rain, and the club members were not being able to play on these courts as much. So the courts might be less played on. However, that should not affect center court or court one. Why? Because you're never allowed to play on center court and court one, even if you're a member at the All England Club. Um, so the uh, the thing with those two courts is that they weren't played on at all. In 2020. So they did not get that that beating that they should get, that they usually get with a lot of the grass dying, having to be regrown, uh, the court getting stepped on and chewed up and dried out. That didn't happen in 2020. So it could be an extra lush uh, piece of grass because it's it's two years untouched here in 2021. There is more moisture when the roof is closed, something to keep in mind for the day one matches. We saw Novak have issues with this. Uh, The roof, uh, I'm pretty sure, was open uh, today, but that's another thing to keep in mind. Uh, The players being rusty, moving on the grass, maybe that's a factor for 2020, but I'm not quite sure about that one. Uh, Lastly, just the moist weather that has been occurring. Uh, This week, early on in this week, tons of rain. And that is probably the main culprit. It is probably the main reason we are seeing a lot of slippage. The rain combined with the fact that it's just the first couple days of the tournament. And those are the most slippery days. Um, So those are kind of, I'd say, the information nuggets that, that come into this. And what needs to be done in the short term is the players need to seriously... Adjust Now, I don't think Serena could have done anything. I think it was just a freak incident. Uh, But I think in this case of some of the players who are slipping, they do need to make adjustments with their movement. They need to take smaller adjustment steps, and they need to never move at 100%. You can never rely on 100% traction. You can never dig your your foot into the ground uh, when you're changing direction and do so with 100% force or you are going to slip. And there are some players who do this just better than others, and Fetter is really the model here. The way that he never really digs his foot in with—you know, there's no—there's never one step that he's really relying on tons of traction on the grass. It's just the way that he moves— And a lot of players are going to need to be very mindful of that. And they need to think about the way they're moving. And they need to try to adjust. Although it's very hard in the heat of the moment when you're playing a match. These are things that you really shouldn't be thinking about. Movement should be natural. It should be in the subconscious. So it'll be interesting to see if some players do make that adjustment. Like Novak Djokovic alluded to at the end of his first round match. Saying, well, certainly I need to think about changing the way I move. Novak is a special case. His ankles are so strong that it's really hard for Novak to get injured. And I think I've seen him slip and fall all the time, but his ankles are so strong that uh, it's difficult, I think, for him to sprain his ankle or roll his ankle. He just, that doesn't happen because his ankles are made of steel. He's kind of a special case that's neither here uh, nor there. The second thing is that Wimbledon needs to take a look at this because, uh, you know, You cannot have a dangerous playing surface. This is uh, not something that should be accepted. I think that they need to look into perhaps players uh, playing on the courts before the tournament so that the courts are, are played on. I think they need to look at how they are covering up the courts. When it rains in the lead up, so, you know, to to minimize ways to possibly minimize moisture. I'm not an expert on that. I don't know if that's possible or if it can be done. Uh, But I do know that they take measures. Wimbledon takes measures such as the qualifying rounds not being played on the courts. And I don't know if that's a mistake. Maybe we should not make it so that the first couple days these courts are so perfect and unplayed on when uh, we could be protecting the players in other ways. Uh, You know, sacrificing the aesthetic, because the court is really beautiful in the first couple days of the championships when you have absolutely no wear and tear on the grass. But clearly, I think players' health is more important, and I think the experts need to look into their processes and think about ways to keep the moisture off the court and ways to make it so that the court plays more like it does maybe the second week of the tournament throughout the championships, if that is possible. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not, and and we need to uh, accept the way this is. But uh, certainly, we don't want this issue, and if there's anything that can be done, we should do it. In addition, the players need to adjust, especially for this year's championships, when the conditions of the courts, they will change in a couple of days. They will get very, uh, you know... They'll stop being slippery in a couple of days. I hear there's sunshine in the forecast for week two. It is going to completely change the way the courts play. But for now, the players need to be mindful of how they're moving on the grass. All right, as we move along in the show, I just want everyone to keep in mind that I will put timestamps in the description. So if you want to skip around, if some matches interest you, some matches don't, or if you've already heard what I've had to say about some of these select matches, just make sure to look in the description and skip to what you want to hear. I'm going to go in order here. Opening Wimbledon 2021 center court was Novak Djokovic and Jack Draper. Novak comes through in four sets after dropping the first 6-4. It was very straightforward for the next three. So Djokovic on to the second round, beating the 19-year-old lefty Brit Jack Draper, who is a former boys' singles uh, Wimbledon finalist. And... uh it, he made a good showing for himself. So I want to evaluate Jack Draper. I'll let you know what I think about his game. But first, uh, let's start with Novak, uh, the victor today. And um, actually, let's start with the moment. Let's start with uh, the occasion. This was this was fantastic. Um, just to have Wimbledon back in our lives. Uh, a huge hole. Very much missed it in 2020. And the match started before the players got out on court with uh, a standing ovation for the vaccine developers who were sitting in the royal box. And then from then on, it just felt like the crowd was very appreciative and very engaged and a beautiful way to kick off this tournament. Okay, now to Novak Djokovic. In 2020, at the Australian Open, it became very, very clear that Djokovic had raised his service level up another notch, up to a level that we we had not seen. And we saw that in, in 2011. Very famously, very well documented. The Djokovic serve went to a, a massive weakness. To something that was a, a solid part of, of his game. And something that would not hold him back from being a, a great champion. That happened in 2011. Start of 2020, he stepped it up another notch. And he really began to build the serve as a weapon. And... Two years went by and we had not seen that weapon on grass, hadn't seen it until today when finally we have seen the Novak Djokovic serve, I don't want to call it 2.0, I want to call it 3.0, we had seen that serve in action and Djokovic hit 25 aces in a pretty short match. His record is 26, and I'm not sure what match it came into, but I know his record is 26. Uh, the service games were very quick, uh, a little bit Federer-like uh, in terms of just the the swiftness and <laughs> the number of aces that were coming off the the racket of Novak Djokovic Wimbledon center court. So. That was uh, a big factor, a big positive, and something to watch throughout the tournament. Let's see what kind of weapon that can be against the better returners later in the tournament, because I don't really think that—yeah, I, I don't I don't know when the, the first really high-level returner Djokovic is going to face. I don't know when that's going to be, but uh, let's see how effective it is. I imagine Novak is going to be coming up with clutch serves in big moments throughout the fortnight. Uh, But this is a a really intriguing start. Again, the first time we've seen the Djokovic 3.0 serve on the grass court, which should really reward it. 25 aces, tremendous serving effort from Djokovic. Tactically, from the baseline, Novak did to Jack Draper what he's done to so many opponents uh, that struggle with mobility a little bit. And as I'll talk about with Draper at this point in his career, he does. I think Novak's tactic... And his ability to execute it was key as well, was just changing direction as much as possible. Going down the line at an extraordinarily high rate. Something that players, without Novak's uh, ability to time the ball and redirect the ball, something that they could not execute, but Djokovic can. And I found that for the most part, he would never hit two cross-court balls in a row. Djokovic would always go either either line right away, or he would go cross-court line, Cross court line, cross court line, or again, line, line, line. He just he would never hit cross court twice in a row. And what that's going to do is it's obviously going to change which corner of the court the ball is being hit to at uh, with more regularity, and it's going to move Draper corner to corner uh, instead of settling into a cross court rally where there's going to be less running done by both players. Actually, by the way, in the rally. So against some players, you might see Djokovic not implement that tactic. Let's say he's playing like RBA or someone, someone who who's super comfortable just moving corner to corner. Novak might not change direction so often, but against Draper, that was the tactic. And I think it was a great one and it was very effective. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about from, from Novak's perspective strictly is... Um, his footing on the grass. It's something that gave him a lot of trouble. Uh, Djokovic was 0-7 for on break points in the first set. It was the main reason he lost the first set. It felt a little bit fluky, not to take any credit away from Draper, who was fantastic and was clutch as well. But Djokovic lost his footing on two key break points out of the seven in the first set. And... He said after the match, I don't recall slipping this many times, and hinted at the fact that he might need to make some adjustments in his movement. Well, I've talked about this before, but Djokovic moves quite differently from most of the players on tour on the grass courts. He moves more aggressively. Conventionally, what you do on grass is you take more small adjustment steps moving to the ball, especially into the corners, and that just reduces the shock. And reduces the necessity for traction on the court, which you don't really have. On a hard court or a clay court, you don't need to take a lot of little steps. You can just take big steps and then slide into the ball. And generally, Novak has basically moved on grass as if it's a hard court uh, or or a clay court. And he's just kind of used his ability to slide. And he's been able to keep his, his balance. But it just wasn't really working for him today. And he was, instead of keeping his balance, despite moving like he would on other surfaces, he was slipping and he, he wasn't able to keep his footing. So let's see if he adjusts his movement. Uh, perhaps there were other factors at play. It had been raining kind of, I think, I think, all morning long. And the roof was closed. And I don't know if the damp... Ness outside combined with the closed roof kind of made a cocktail that made the grass more moist and as a result made it more slippery and maybe later on in the tournament, it's 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 likely the grass gets less slippery, it gets harder, it dies a little bit uh, behind the baseline, and... Generally, the conditions become drier, so Djokovic can can move like he normally does. But I would, I would uh, liken it to like an F1 driver driving in the rain. And Novak is someone who just comes into every corner very, very aggressively when it comes to his movement, where most other players, when they play on the slippery grass, instead of sliding, they're going to move a little bit more cautiously. So... It's interesting, and we'll track it throughout the tournament. Now let's talk about Jack Draper. 19 years old, comes into this match. The first thing that comes uh, really sticks out is his mentality because he really looked like he had no fear, and he went after the ball. He was not shy out there. He walked around the court with a presence, with a swagger, and these are all good things, things you want to see. Someone who, who did not look afraid, of being the hometown kid opening Wimbledon on center court against Novak Djokovic, one of the greatest of all time. So that's a really good sign. The serve is big. He's lefty. I liked how he mixed up his spots. He mixed up his serves really, really well. But the serve should improve. It should get bigger. He still doesn't pump it up to the like the one thirty mile per hour range very often. He's he's much more often below that range. And at about six foot six, with uh, a good strong frame, he should be able to add some miles per hour. I don't know if the technique doesn't really lend itself to that very well at this stage, but we'll we'll have to see. Um, but I do think the serve will get bigger. Um, He's also, I think, really good from a set position off both wings. I like how it's not just the forehand that's a big weapon. He's not just a big serve and a big forehand, but he can actually create off the backhand really well. I think he's really comfortable ripping the backhand side. And for a tall lefty, for some reason, that feels rare. It feels like we haven't seen that much out of some of the players who you might want to compare Jack Draper to, like a Gilles Mueller or a Feliciano Lopez, both big lefties who are just not comfortable really hitting through the backhand. So it's good to see that he can do that. Really, he just needs to improve his mobility, needs to be better on the move, return, defense. What happened with Draper here, especially, I think, on the forehand side, I liked him better on the backhand side, and he actually got the break in the first set, partially because he hit a beautiful backhand pass cross-court on the run. But when he was on the run on his forehand side, he just bled errors. He, he couldn't keep the ball in the court. He was very vulnerable in, in that position from the corners on his forehand side. So that needs to be better because you cannot reach an elite level without good on-the-run play and without good mobility. Nobody's been able to do that, really. I think in the, in the history of the sport, who hasn't moved well and has reached the heights of a Grand Slam champion? who hasn't been able to hit on the run. I don't think anyone, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you know, back in the day of serve and volley, it might have been a little bit different where you had some players just bombing serves and coming forward. That's a little bit different. But in the modern game, I don't think we've seen that. So with that being said, I like what I see from Jack Draper. I think surely he's going to be a factor at this tournament for years to come. But please do not compare him or or burden him with the expectations of the next Andy Murray. It is completely inappropriate. He is not flashing that kind of potential. Um, That's not to say that he can't reach that level, but he has miles to go. There is no guarantee that he can cover that ground. There is no guarantee that he can make all those improvements, and there is no reason to call him the heir apparent to Andy Murray. It does not help him. It is, And the most likely result is that if you are slapping that label on him, that you are going to look silly with years to come. Just like everyone who called Grigor Dimitrov baby-fed not only hurt Grigor Dimitrov, but looked silly. So please... I like what I see from Draper. He's got a solid base, great ground strokes, good weapons, good serve, seemingly a really great mentality. That's awesome. Like, there's a lot there, but there's a lot that's not there that needs to be there, and we definitely shouldn't be comparing him to Andy Murray. Next up, we got what was a surprising result at the All-England Club on day one, Stefano Tsitsipas. Taking on Francis Tiafa of our first carnage of the tournament with Tsitsipas going down to the American in straight sets. Well, uh, some of my attention was diverted for the first half of this match uh, to Novak Djokovic, which I have a post-match video up on as well. Uh, but I have to cover this because a big upset, and I'm going to talk mostly big picture, but there were also clear things going on in that match that you could have ...been watching any portion of the match, and these things were clear, which is that Tiaf- Tiafo exploited Tsitsipas' backhand in a major, major way, and he did so with his very unique skill set, but great to see Tiafo get a big win which uh, I feel like has been bubbling and brewing throughout the season. He went very far in the Nottingham Challenger, made the final there, uh, played a lot of grass court tennis after going out at Roland Garros. So he had really uh, become acclimated with the surface and in general is uh, very good at Wimbledon, although he did lose first round last year, got an unlucky draw. I believe he lost to uh, Fanini in five sets. Um, But the year before, he was looking primed to make the fourth round and then ended up losing to Karen Hachinov after going up two sets to love. And it was in large part uh, due to a stomach bug or a stomach pain that he ended up developing midway through that match and completely turned around the match. He would have been one of the last 16 standing at Wimbledon 2018. It's great to see him back there and much more engaged and focused uh, throughout this 2021 season. We saw it a little bit in Australia against Novak Djokovic. Tiafoe is someone who rises to the occasion, likes playing in front of big crowds, likes playing in front of the best players in the world, and also enjoys playing short points. The grass court suits his game because uh, he's able to serve big, hit his forehand big, but complement that with a lot of great net play. He likes to finish points quickly. He doesn't have great discipline in the long rallies, but he comes to net to finish points. He's got great hands, buttery touch, and the backhand of Francis Tiafo is built for grass. Very little backswing, stays very low, hits it very flat, underpowered on most most surfaces, but on grass, when he can take it early uh, and he can... Uh, get through the court, use the surface, it becomes actually a really great offensive weapon. And he took advantage of that in this match. Tons of variety, mixed in serve and volley. He's got a good slice. He's got good drop shots. It's really the total package and very fun to watch when he's engaged, which he has been more and more throughout the season. Head coach Wayne Ferreira has worked on his focused. Uh, has not allowed him to look at his phone during practice sessions and during uh, massages and, and physical kind of training blocks. All of those things have been used to train Tiafo's mind into doing a better job focusing without dips, without gaps for hours and hours on end. On the TTpas side of the coin— this is a rather predictable loss for uh, for someone in a, a difficult spot coming off of a clay court season where first of all he played tons of tennis. he went deep in every single tournament he played Barcelona uh, which is like we've seen how how difficult it has been for Nadal to play all the 1000s Barcelona, and Roland Garros, going deep in everything. We've seen how difficult that turnaround is to play Wimbledon. But you have this time the French Open postponed, only two week rest between them. Titi Pas going deep every single time. Uh, also losing his his grandmother, and I don't know what effect that could have played on the mental and just how this 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 last two weeks have played. I know those two were very close. Uh, that's another thing. And then just trying to transition between the surfaces, and you have a guy in Stefano Tsitsipas who has a return strategy on the clay, which does not work on grass, which cannot work on quicker surfaces, and just has a lot of weaknesses and holes in his game that are exacerbated by the quicker surfaces that he could not have had any time to work on in the time between Roland Garros and Wimbledon, which ultimately he had to be focused on just physically recovering, rather than working on the parts of his game which really do need work if he's gonna be a factor on the fastest surfaces. So no grass court warm-ups, trying to recover from a brutally physical clay court season and facing a difficult opponent in Tiafo, who had tons of grass court practice in the lead up, is dangerous at, at Wimbledon, dangerous in best of five, was the perfect storm to kind of create this upset here. But tactically. The only thing I want to highlight. Is the Pass backhand. And how Tiafo Went aggressive to the backhand. And came in behind. Um, came in behind his aggression to the net. To Pass's backhand. With tremendous effect. And he did so in, in so many different situations. Um, whether it be serve volley. Serving big to Titi Pass's backhand and coming in right behind it, taking advantage of that uncomfortable return. Titi Pass missed way too many second serve backhand returns in this match. Way too many. Um, so serve and volleying to that side, hitting his cross-court backhand, Tiafo, hitting it really hard, really low, really flat, and putting Titi Pass in a, in a position where he's hitting his backhand below the level of his knees. And Pass has a, a very underdeveloped slice backhand. I don't consider it to be good. I consider it to be pretty poor. And he didn't use it very often in this match. Again, I don't think he practiced it much because on clay, he doesn't use it. He doesn't have to use it, and he doesn't use it because the ball bounces up higher but on grass when the ball stays low it's very difficult for Titi Pas to get down low and hit the topspin backhand especially at 6 foot 4 6 foot 5 at that that tall stature that that Tiafoe, uh, excuse me Titi Pas stands so it would be much easier for him to slice the backhand but it is not a good shot for him it's unnatural um so that's that's one way that Tiafoe broke Titi Pas's contact point with his cross court backhand staying really low or the slice backhand staying really low. Either way. The other way was with pace. Pace off of the Tiafo forehand into Titi Pass's backhand. And if you can, um, he was able to rush that side. It's a long topspin backhand. It does not respond well to being rushed. Tiafo takes the ball very early, hits it very hard off the forehand and the backhand. And could create situations where Tsitsipas was making errors off of his back end. Or going to the slice because he didn't have enough time. And again, every time it was to the slice. Or every time uh, Tiafo got an aggressive cut inside the court. He was coming in. And Tsitsipas' Pass's backhand defense was very, very bad. It was either floating slices. And you can't you can't float a slice if your opponent is coming to net. That's an easy put-away every single time. Or it was trying to hit over the ball and at a very high rate, miss hitting, or misfiring. Very high rate for Paz. So it was a brilliant offensive game plan. Really, really good. He ended up serving mostly to the backhand, but using the serve to the forehand as a change-up, as a surprise tactic. And even that wound up being very effective in a couple of really big spots. Um, Paz couldn't get the return going until... The latter stages of the third set, and Tiafo did a really good job of fighting through those service games and playing clutch and getting those holds regardless. Uh, but so many things coming in behind second serve returns um, with a down the line backhand was another play I saw Tia- uh, Tiafo utilize against CT Pass's backhand. But ultimately, that side did not hold up, and, Tiaf- and-, and Tiafo. Sorry, I'm used to calling him Tiafoe, um, but I hear a lot of people calling him Tiafo now. So I, I suppose I got to listen to how he says it, because my whole life I've been calling Francis Tiafoe, and now I'm hearing Tiafo for a lot. So it's just hard for me to adjust there. But anyway, just a brilliant game plan, just pounding that backhand side, just exploiting it in a really, really big way. Uh, taking away time, keeping the ball low, deadly combination. And serving big, serving big to that side as well. Uh, and then coming forward to force Pass to come up with the pass, not letting him slice it because it's going to get punished with, with Tiafo at the net. Uh, just a, Just a deadly combination. All things considered, this didn't feel like an upset. This felt like when these two took the court, the American was the better player. We finish up here with a day two match. It involves Roger Federer and Adrian Manorino. Not the finish we were hoping for, but still some takeaways from this first round contest. Roger Federer goes down two sets to one, but ultimately Manorino slips, falls, and has to retire in a extremely difficult to watch development for Uh, A veteran in Manorino who really deserves better and played great and did great to put himself in a position to attempt to pull off this upset over Federer in the first round at Wimbledon. Uh, Ultimately, the the result is not what I'm going to focus on here for, for this video, obviously, because the result doesn't really tell us much. You can't draw much from it. Roger Federer had all the momentum in the fourth set. It was likely going five. I'm not going to talk about what I think would have happened because that is truly meaningless to the highest degree. It is tennis. Who knows what would have happened? Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't get to find out. I think the fifth set would have been very illuminating and very intriguing. And I think we were all robbed, the viewers and Adrian Manorino. And maybe even Roger Federer was robbed because it could have been a positive experience for him. Uh, even though he saves some time on the court. Uh, ultimately, I will talk about Federer's performance. I will talk about Manarino as a player and kind of some of the things that that he does well because he's such a fascinating player. I feel like he's one of those players who is so unique that I often use him as an example when I'm talking about tactical stuff uh, You know, on Monday Match Analysis and stuff. Um, but let me start with Federer. I want to talk about energy. I want to talk about momentum and confidence and one of the things that makes the best tennis players so great is that is, it is very difficult to break their confidence. And confidence can be an overarching term, it can be, or it can be very concentrated. And in this case, Roger Federer, after the first set, went into a horrible rut on a very specific shot on his forehand. His forehand became an absolute mess, an absolute liability. And let's be real, and I ta- I've talked about this many, many times, uh, especially in 2018 when Federer injured his hand and didn't hit his forehand well. And throughout the entire 2018 season, it was basically like, I don't know what to say about Roger Federer in his game. If, if he's not going to hit his forehand well, he's not going to be a great player. And it's very it, it's as simple as that because all of his weapons from his backhand to his movement to his serve, to his variety, all of these things that Roger Federer does well. It's all about setting up the forehand. That's really what all paths lead to a little bit uh, less, a little bit less so than Nadal, but not by much. I think Nadal is a little bit more heavy leaning on the forehand, but Federer is right there. He it's really he is as well. So. If he's not going to hit his forehand well, he's not going to be playing well, plain and simple. If you know he's never going to serve enough aces to make up for the fact that his forehand is not firing, he's never going to hit his backhand well enough to make up for his forehand. It's pretty much not going to happen. So in the second set and the third set, that's what happened. In the second set, I uh, I have um, 13 no, excuse me, 12 unforced errors on the forehand and one winner, which came on a drop shot on the forehand side in the second set. The forehand lost Roger Federer the tiebreak. It lost him chances to get the break early in the second set. And then in the third set, it began to get better. And in the fourth set, uh, in the first game, he played a very close opening service game. And on add-in, first game of the fourth set... Federer played what was probably his best point of the match, strung together great shots, hit multiple excellent forehands, in the point finished with a volley, ovation from the crowd at the changeover and the the energy of the entire match changed and Federer became, you know, gotten to a gotten to a zone and looked to shorten points actually upped his forehand aggression. And I know that might sound counterintuitive for someone who is struggling with the forehand. Why would you play it more aggressively? But hey, it helped the shot. That mindset adjustment and injecting some anger into his forehands. And instead of hoping that he could string together a couple good ones, hitting it as an approach shot and being ultra aggressive on it actually helped its effectiveness and helped him put it in the court. Um Again, counterintuitive, but that's what happened. He shortened the points. He started to impose himself on Manorino and make Manorino the uncomfortable player. Instead of Roger Federer having to sit back and trying to trade his forehand effectively, trying to build points with his forehand effectively, and really unable to do it, credit to some of the things Manorino does well. He hits very, very deep. He has tremendous depth. His ball stays very low because it's very flat and he rarely misses. He plays so clean and he never gets tired. Manorino, in many ways, is a total nightmare to play. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of finishing power, but on grass, on on that kind of surface and against Federer, he doesn't need finishing power. All he needs to do is extract the errors from Federer and just just by keeping the ball very deep in the court and hitting that piercing backhand cross court. He gave Fetter's forehand absolute fits. Uh, but Fetter found it. What's concerning for Fetter is that he cannot go that long without finding confidence. And his confidence needs to be more dynamite than it was in this match. He can't he can't go two full sets without forehand confidence. It's it's just it means he's not there. It means he's it's not at his best. Now, maybe he goes the rest of the tournament and that doesn't happen again. All I'm saying is that shouldn't happen. And against a Roger Federer at his best, that doesn't happen. Again, what makes a player like Roger Federer or any player at his level so great is because, one, it's very hard to break the confidence. And if you do break it, normally the the cold streak, the slump, doesn't last that long. It might last a game. It might last 10 minutes. But this lasted about an hour and a half. It was very bad and very difficult for Federer to get out of that rut. With all credit to Adrian Manorino, who played so clean, who didn't miss. Uh, Another dynamic I want to point out that worked in favor of Manorino, and let's talk about the Roger Federer serve, Uh, just to talk about the serve return dynamic a little bit. In the first set, Federer got off to a terrible start on his serve, but then started rolling on the serve and put a lot of pressure on on Manorino's serve for the remainder of the first set because he started to serve really, really well. Found the serve again in the fourth set. Started to serve his best percentage of the match in the fourth set. Um, but it wasn't a, a, another another match where I don't think Federer served well for for most of it. And a lot of that had to do with the, the lack of effectiveness he was getting off of his wide serve on the deuce side especially. It was a, a joke how ineffective it was and the reason it really came to, you know, a, a glaring head was that Manorino with the same serve only on the ad side because he's a lefty, Manorino was loving that serve and getting great effectiveness out of it. But when Federer was serving wide on the deuce side, Manorino was basically connecting beautifully on backhand down the line returns. And that, of course, goes to the Federer backhand. Um, sometimes, sometimes he wouldn't hit it down the line. And again, he was connecting so cleanly on that backhand return when Federer served wide slice serve on the deuce. It was a big problem. And when Manorino served the same side, uh, the same serve, out wide on the ad side, Federer was struggling to just hit backhand slice back. You know, those, I don't want to call it a block return. So it wasn't really blocking it. It's kind of chopping it back. And Manorino was getting really good looks at it or getting service winners from it and outserved Roger Federer. I just want to point out specifically a game in the fourth set, which was after Federer gets the break back. uh, Manorino breaks back at one all, one all in the fourth set. And if you don't believe me that Federer didn't serve well in this game or that this serve is still a problem, just look at that one-all game where the serve, four points in a row, gets punished. Punished. And Federer can't afford that on grass. Um, because Manorino goes the rest of the fourth set playing and serving brilliantly. So well. It was it was Manorino's best play if the match was in the fourth set because Federer's forehand wasn't quite so off the rails towards the end, especially, but Manorino was up a break because Federer at that, at, in that game, got his serve bullied on a grass court at one, all love all, um, or, you know what? It wasn't one, all excuse me. It was, uh, it was one. Why am I, why am I losing this in my notes? Um, Oh, that's cause I'm on the fourth set. Aha. It was two, three at two, three in the third set. um, Federer serves it wide. Manorino hits a beautiful backhand down the line return. And um and Fetter misses the backhand, the first backhand. Love 15. Manorino pounds a deep uh pounds deep cross-court backhands over and over again after a solid return. You know, again, the deep cross-court backhand really bothering the Federer forehand, and Federer looks to change down the line and does it miserably, misses by a lot. Uh, Love 30, backhand cross-court return winner by Manorino, a return winner. And then Love 40, crushed forehand return up the middle, draws the error. That's three returns by Manorino in one game that Federer does not make the next ball back, does not make his second ball back. So I know it's one game and I'm nitpicking, but that was the break. That lost Federer the fourth set and that shouldn't really ever happen on grass to Roger Federer. He should never get his serve, you know, so easily handled. But in the fourth set, Federer was awesome and just found an energy about him that was tremendous and lethal. And he has more weapons than Manorino and more finishing power. And the forehand was firing. And he had eight forehand winners when the um, in the fourth set. And I think he had like four unforced errors. I mean, how different is that? And he was coming forward. And by the way, his volleys were really good, and it was a great tactic against Manorino when he could come in, which was rare because Manorino just doesn't drop the ball short. He's really good at keeping the ball deep in the court. But when Federer had a chance to come in, he was incredibly effective at the net. He was winning like 80, I think, north of 80% of his net points. Uh, And Manorino, his passing shots are a little bit flat, so it gives Federer good looks at volleys often. And it was, it was great tennis by Federer in the fourth set. If he continued that, he would have won the fifth. So um, it was an interesting match where, you know, Federer, the forehand went totally off the rails. It gave him no chance. Manorino's wide serve was working. Federer's wide serve was was not working. Federer needs to do a couple things better. He cannot have his confidence broken so easily. He cannot slump for that long a period on his forehand, he still needs to serve better. Uh, but there were also some, you know, he showed that in the in the moments where he was right, he showed why he's the better player than Adrian Manorino. So Federer moves on. Second round, he will face Richard Gazquet. All right, that's the show. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. My recording schedule is uh, a little bit different than... Uh, most grand slams. So I decided to do this. Let me know if it works for you. Uh, make sure you're me on Twitter at Gil underscore gross. My DMS are open. So if you ever want to get to me, that's always uh, a good way. Um, of course, again, subscribe review. Uh, really appreciate it everyone. And, uh, I will see you next time.